Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, trapped in Khartoum. To continue to offer any support Canada can have in calling for a ceasefire and looking for resolution. Hundreds of Canadians are caught in the crossfire of two warring factions in Sudan. What kind of help can they actually get? What to make of a government plan to send in a military plane? Coming up, we will speak to the man who once headed Canada's diplomatic mission to Sudan, Nicholas Coughlin. Also. But there's more to do. So let's finish the job. The U.S. president makes it official. Joe Biden will seek re-election. But are Americans eager for a second term? We'll get the view from Washington. Plus. To the moon and beyond, what will Canada's involvement with the Artemis missions mean for technology, innovation and the knowledge economy here at home? Coming up, we will speak to the head of Space Canada. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Sarabio. Canadian officials are still looking at a possible airlift to get Canadian citizens out of Sudan. At last count, there are over 1,600 Canadians in the country trapped by fighting between Sudan's army and a paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF. It is a bloody struggle that has left hundreds dead since fighting broke out more than a week ago. Canada temporarily suspending diplomatic operations out of safety concerns, but still say government officials working to get Canadians out. Take a listen to the Prime Minister. Canada is engaged with our allies. Uh, we have uh, assets in the region. Uh, we're looking at doing direct airlifts lifts of uh, Canadians and dependents. Uh, we're also engaged diplomatically. I just spoke with the chairperson of the African Union this morning uh, to continue to offer any support Canada can have in calling for a ceasefire and looking for resolution. Uh, it's a situation we'll continue to do. What's the uh, there's no delay. Obviously, it's an extremely difficult situation. We've had uh, resources in the region uh, for many days now. Uh, we're coordinating with our allies. There's uh, very limited uh, both uh, uh, places where uh, those airlifts can happen from. Uh, there's you know, discussions around uh, with the different countries on who, who gets to land when, who gets to do the airlift uh, uh, work quickly. We also have uh, a couple of uh, ships off the coast of on the Red Sea in, uh, in uh, for, uh, Port Sudan, uh, a frigate and, uh, and a supply ship. Uh, Canada is very much engaged. We will continue to be. To discuss the situation, we are now joined by Nicholas Coughlin. Mr. Coughlin served as the sole diplomatic presence in Sudan from 2000 to 2003. He was also Canada's first ambassador to South Sudan from 2012 to 2013. And during that time, he helped save hundreds of lives by staying behind and evacuating Canadian citizens who were trapped when the South Sudan descended into chaos. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Most welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Now, Global Affairs says there are about 1,500 Canadians in Sudan right now. And like many foreign nationals, there are those who want to get out of the country. But Canada has temporarily uh, suspended operations in the capital of Khartoum. What kind of help can these Canadians get if consular officials are now operating in another country? 
Well, there's no question that, that that assistance is going to be more limited than it would have been um, had they been on the ground. What they can be doing, of course, is collating information from uh, all of our allies about what is going on, um, feeding that information back into Sudan so that people on the ground get a better idea of the, of the context. Uh, but most importantly, of course, uh, trying to coordinate with our, with our allies, um, evacuation flights, and uh, as and when those flights materialize, getting the information uh, back to uh, the individuals in Sudan of where they need to be and when to get on board and with what were documentation and so on. So they can do a fair amount, but um, no question um, they would be more effective on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to touch on both of those in a moment, but you know, as I said earlier, you did stay behind in South Sudan back in 2013. Your efforts and those of your wife saved hundreds of lives. What kind of help were you able to provide Canadians who actually showed up at the airport, that physical presence versus being in another country? Well, I'd like very much to stress that, that these things are, are, you know, a team effort. Uh, although it was, in the end, it was just my wife and, and myself and Juba, we did have dozens, possibly hundreds of people uh, backing us up, both in the region and in Ottawa. I mean, I'll give you a little example here. So on a, on a daily basis, we would um, basically tune in to Ottawa, to the, to the crisis group, who would tell us, uh, how during the night, what flights they had arranged and how many seats we were going to get, uh, what time the planes were coming in and so on. Uh, we would then go down to the airport, uh, put up our flag in the tree, and uh, we would be calling in the uh, obviously the correct number of Canadians. if We had 20 seats or 30 seats, whatever, and then process them. I'll give you a little example of uh, why you need the presence on the ground. Um, about the third or fourth day of the evacuation, when things were pretty bad in Juba, we had a, a middle-aged gentleman showed up, obviously quite distressed. He was basically in shorts and a pair of flip-flops and a little plastic bag with his possessions and his uh, seven-year-old daughter by his hand. He had his passport. Uh, he had not had time to get the daughter's passport. His neighbor had, uh, had his throat cut in front of him, and he had been told to get out now. So there he was at the airport. He's got a passport. The daughter hasn't. Now, I have the authority to issue an emergency passport. Um, but I have to be satisfied that person is a Canadian. Uh, so there you have an example. Um, what that requires is getting back to Ottawa. Uh, I had a very good team back at headquarters, passport office in the middle of the night in Ottawa, run through it. In the end, uh, you know, all credit to them. Basically, they say to me, um, there's nothing else to be done here. Look at the father and look at the girl and tell me if you think they are um, a father and daughter. So on that basis, we're able to uh, issue the uh, uh, the passport, get them on the plane and get them out. Um, obviously, that is something you can't be doing remotely. So does it make sense then, given the, the, the amount of desperation right now, if you, you translate that past experience with what's happening right now in Sudan, so many Canadians wanting to get out, does it make sense to suspend operations then? Well, I mean, you have, you know, what is being put into practice here, well, we haven't yet seen it. We haven't seen a, a Canadian aircraft going in with Canadian personnel. But the alternative uh, to that, that modus operandi is to send your plane in with your consular officials on board. Obviously, you need to know that the airport is secure. You're depending on your allies. You're depending on people on the ground to know you have a secure location. You come in, your consular crew all disembark. Uh, you process your people on the ground, then you all leave together. Um, the disadvantage is that it takes a lot more time. You're going to have the aircraft on the ground for several hours. Uh, also, those Canadian officials coming in are taking up seats that could be used for going out. Um, and similarly, you are depending, you don't have the same sense of what is going on. 
one of our routines in Juba, a daily routine, would be meeting with all of the other embassies. Now, you might rightly say in Sudan, there are no other embassies right now. So it's, uh, that's a huge limitation. But with non-governmental organizations, UN, whatever, to get a feeling of what is happening in the city, uh, which are the safe zones, which are the more dangerous zones, um, and then so that we can operate the next day. Uh, you know, a further thing we were able to do in, um, in Juba, in South Sudan, was when we had people stranded in the city, uh, make contact with them, and we would go out in the armored vehicle to pick them up and bring them into the airport if they felt uh, they, were, they were unable to do that. Having said that, in Sudan, I have no question, it's, it's a much larger scale and also operating at a greater distance. The airport they're using is 20 or 30 kilometers out of town. So huge challenges. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, Global Affairs says there are about 1,500 uh, Canadians right now in Sudan. Uh, by, by all accounts, that seems to be an undercount. What do you make of that? Uh, almost certainly an undercount. I mean, just to give you an example, in, in Juba, at the, at the beginning of the crisis, uh, basically, I was ordered to evacuate, and I was said, well, what about the Canadians? And they said, listen, there only are 17 on the list. And I, you know, I knew that was, was not possible. I'd been processing three or four passports a week for, for a year. Um, and in fact, in the first week, we evacuated 140. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why people don't register, uh, principally because uh, they are usually dual nationals. They feel at home. They feel as though they're in their own country. They feel comfortable. Why would I bother registering? And there are some others who register who fail to register uh, simply because they wrongly they distrust the bureaucracy. They feel uh, this could be some approach by Canada Revenue or something like that. Um, so the numbers uh, who register is always a significant underestimate. But having said that, of those 1,500, not all will wish to be evacuated. Now, as you noted, the Prime Minister says that Canada will be using a, a military transport plane to, to airlift citizens out of uh, Sudan. But there's been no ceasefire that's held so far to, to allow a safe landing of a plane. How hopeful are you that an evacuation might be near? Do, do you have much faith in that plan? I mean, I don't have the inside track on, 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 what, on what's happening here. Uh, you know, a number of countries have made successful evacuations. Uh, as I said, the airstrip they're using is, is definitely in a more secure location. It's not in the middle of the fighting. Khartoum Airport itself is, is right in the center of the, the fighting, even though it's very convenient for people to get to. So one has some hope it might hold. Um, I think the medium to long term uh, perspective is not good. Uh, you have basically it's an all out power struggle between these two armed groups. Um, the leaders of which, both of whom, frankly, are war criminals who deserve prosecution. The only reason uh, they have not been sanctioned is because right now you need somebody to talk to. Um, but they are not to be trusted. And of course, their command and control is probably limited. Uh, a lot of their troops are not being fed, not being watered. So they are looting. They are on the rampage as well. Um, and so it is a, a fairly bleak scenario, I would say. Nicholas Coughlin, really appreciate the time and your insight into this matter. Thank you for the invitation. The U.S. president is ending any doubt that he intends to run again. Joe Biden officially announcing his re-election bid, saying he wants to finish the job he started when he took over from Donald Trump. The threat the MAGA Republicans pose is to take us to a place we've never been and where the last guy tried to take us. And look how hard we had to fight to prevail and get prevailing wage. Bush Lewis, Davis Bacon, Project Labor Agreement, health care. My God, we had a fight like hell. And folks, we made a lot of progress because of all of you. 
but there's more to do. So let's finish the job. Well, with more on Biden's bid for a second term, we're happy to have back on the program David Leventhal, the editor-in-chief of Raw Story. Dave, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me back. So here we have a Biden uh, deciding to run again, despite the many Democrats who were hoping he would not. Uh, let's begin there. When we talk about Democratic Party members, how happy are they about this development? There's lukewarm support for Joe Biden. You're not going to find too many Democrats who are just ecstatic and, and, and turning somersaults over the idea of Joe Biden having another four years. Now, they certainly want a Democrat in office. They want to retain the White House. But there is a, a kind of feeling and insensibility or sense among many Democrats that, all right, he's the president of the United States. We're going to support him and we're going to go full to the wall for Joe Biden. But were he to step away, it wouldn't be a disaster. And in fact, I think a lot of Democrats would feel that there would be other people, whether it's Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg, or you could list about 10 governors and senators who would be uh, there to serve if Joe Biden uh, had decided to step away. Well, that makes me wonder uh, about the vote itself then, because of course, 2020 was really tight. If the base is not enthused about the candidate. How does that bode for the Democrats going into re-election? So Joe Biden's poll numbers right now are not great. They're not great nationally. They are not great even within the Democratic Party. Although, again, to underscore, most Democrats are going to support Joe Biden regardless. But yeah, enthusiasm, you would like to be going into a campaign feeling like you've got some tailwind behind you. Joe Biden has a lot of headwinds. That's the bad news. The good news, Michael, is that there's a lot of time here and that Joe Biden also is going to be able to spend that time not running against other Democrats. This is not like 2020 in the sense that he's going to have a whole slew of opponents that he is running in a Democratic primary against. Yes, he'll have some token opposition from a couple of Democrats who've thrown their hat in, but I mean, they're pretty fringy. And Joe Biden is going to have if not a cakewalk all the way to the Democratic nomination next year, he's going to have a pretty clear path. So he's going to be able to kind of sit back and watch the Republicans slog it out and slug it out, which is exactly what's going to happen with Donald Trump and any number of other candidates who are also going to enter the Republican fray, including several who already have. Yeah, well, you know, when we talk about the Republicans, it was interesting to listen to Biden uh, in his announcement because he, he says his reelection run is about securing rights and freedom. So how much of this campaign uh, is about issues like the right to choose and the don't say gay law in Florida? Quite a bit. And those are going to be the things that Joe Biden, you can almost certainly expect are going to focus on. He is going to focus on those issues. He is going to lay this campaign out as a choice between what he brings to the table, which he was going to say is a sense of stability, a sense of optimism, pointing toward the future, and then contrasting and juxtaposing that with what he is going to say the Republicans offer, which is fear and, in his own words, uh, you know, loathing and hatred and uh, it lining up next to white supremacists. I mean, this is what you're going to hear from the Democratic Party and from Joe Biden when they try to more or less paint and, and tar Republicans with that type of messaging and rhetoric. So Republicans are going to, you know, really have to get their own house in order before the general election ever begins. And Biden does have that opportunity to characterize Republicans almost 
free and clear without any intramural fighting within his own Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Well, without a doubt, there, there are some Americans out there uh, who want to see a rematch of 2020. And you mentioned Donald Trump's uh, bid to, be, to get the Republican nomination. I'm wondering whether or not Biden's announcement today strengthened Trump's campaign, because I, I wonder if it galvanizes Americans who believe in the so-called great lie that Biden allegedly stole the 2020 vote. It may help around the margins. I mean, I think people who are supporting Donald Trump and are tried and true supporters who no matter what Donald Trump says, no matter what Donald Trump does, they're going to love him and they will love him to the end, however that ends, whether that's losing the election in 2024, whether that is uh, falling victim to the numerous legal clouds that uh, that hang over his head at this point. Uh, we really don't know ultimately uh, how Donald Trump's story will conclude as a political figure and a political entity. But in the meantime, yeah, I mean, I suppose a little bit that Joe Biden's announcement is going to stoke those still very smoldering embers of 2020. But at the same time, too, we're running in 2024. Donald Trump is going to have to make the case that he is a candidate for the 2024 election and not just uh, somebody who is relitigating the election of 2020. Yeah, and, and potentially facing indictment as well. So, you know, uh, let's Correct. also let's also talk a bit about Kamala Harris here, because, yes, we now have Biden running again. And, and when that video ends, you see the, the Biden-Harris slate. But there is speculation about Kamala Harris herself, the, the U.S. vice president, because she's faced criticism within the Democratic Party. There, there has been, uh, I guess, speculation that Biden might choose a second person to run on the Democratic ticket and not Harris again. What do you hear about that? Well, if you're looking for somebody in the Democratic Party who is even uh, less popular than Joe Biden, you look to his vice president. Kamala Harris is not particularly well-liked uh, nationwide. She is liked well enough within the Democratic Party for, of course, her to remain on the ticket. And Joe Biden likes her. So that's what ultimately counts. He's got to pick his own running mate. So the status quo, both for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, has won the day, at least today, I think, Michael, a, a question which, again, we have no idea what the future will hold, but if Joe Biden was to have to step away because of health issues or something over the course of this campaign, then what happens next? Would Kamala Harris just simply be the heir apparent? Would there be a Democratic primary? As you kind of play this parlor game, and I talk to Democrats about this, some do wonder if ultimately she could win an election against Donald Trump or any of the many other Republicans who are going to challenge Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. A question we don't have to worry about right now, but let's check back in a year and see what happens. Oh, I suspect we'll be checking back sooner than a year, David Leventhal. <laughs> but for now, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. Well, let's take a look now at other developments that took place today on Parliament Hill, starting with top political operatives testifying on foreign interference. At no time during my tenure as national director has the Liberal Party of Canada knowingly accepted support from or turned a blind eye to interference in a Canadian election by any foreign state. We have not tacitly accepted the help of any foreign state, nor have we encouraged it. 
Islam Ishmael did warn he is limited in what he can say about the security briefings given to political parties and that those same restrictions would likely prevent telling liberal candidates without the proper clearance. As for the Conservative Party's last campaign manager, he says online interference might have hurt their chances in Toronto and Vancouver, but Fred Delory warns it's not just a Conservative or even a Liberal problem. We're spending a lot of time trying to find out who knew what, when, and where. Um, I feel a lot of effort should be going into, uh, as legislators, putting together legislation to plug these holes. We're all under threat here. Um, all parties could be impacted by this in the next election. It can come from different entities, uh, different countries, uh, and I really wish we could see a more collaborative approach to really drill down on what the issues are and how we solve them. Meanwhile, gun control advocates are pressing the NDP to give clear support for a permanent ban on assault-style weapons. But Jagmeet Singh says he does support it. His issue has been the government's handling of Bill C-21 and its amendments. We are absolutely for a assault uh, weapon ban. We are absolutely for a ban on handguns. We've always been for it as, as a leader of this party and as the party as a whole, New Democrats are, are for these these bans. Singh says NDP amendments will target the gun industry instead of Indigenous communities and hunters, closing loopholes that he says are letting gun makers sidestep the list of restricted weapons. The public safety minister says he is open to the idea. I think that there is an opportunity to look at an amendment that will strengthen Bill C-21 so that manufacturers um, are required uh, to work with law enforcement in the classification of firearms, including on the important point of those firearms which may fall uh, under a definition of a prohibited firearm as an assault-style firearm. Well, you're looking at the scene from a few weeks ago, the industry minister, Francois-Philippe Champagne, at the Johnson Space Center in Houston as NASA announced the crew for Artemis II. It will be the first crewed mission to the moon in decades, and on board will be Canadian astronaut Jeremy Hansen. Well, it is a mission that is being celebrated tonight in Ottawa, and to talk a bit more about that, we're now joined by Brian Gallant, former Premier of New Brunswick, who is now the CEO of the industry group Space Canada. Mr. Gallant, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, as we talk about the celebrations this evening, you are joined uh, in Ottawa today by the crew of Artemis II, uh, the Prime Minister, the Industry Minister, experts, students. What does Canada's participation in the Artemis program mean for the future of the space industry in this country? It's an extremely exciting day. It's an extremely exciting time for the Canadian space sector. I would also argue for Canada as a whole, and even for all of humanity. I mean, with Artemis II, humanity is venturing out into space yet again. Uh, the Canadian Space Agency astronaut Jeremy Hansen will be a part of the four-person crew of Artemis II, which is a big deal. It's a big deal to the point that the Prime Minister wants to be uh, involved and meet the, the astronauts. And, and I wonder if it's because, uh, in part, he recognizes the, the monumental historic nature of this, this uh, mission. Uh, I wonder if it's because, obviously, he recognizes, I hope, the, the importance of space to our everyday lives as Canadians and, and for people around the globe. But I also like to think he just is interested by space. I mean, he is inspired by it. And, and to see four astronauts come together to be able to accomplish 
what they're going to accomplish is pretty amazing. So for the Canadian space ecosystem and industry, we, we really hope that the Artemis II mission helps to instill a sense of pride for Canadians. Uh, we, we hope it raises awareness of the importance of space to our everyday lives, how we can help our economy, how we can help uh, us tackle societal and planetary challenges that worry us. And and you know what? I, I hope it inspires a new generation of Canadians to reach for the stars. Yeah, let's, let's Fig build. Figuratively, figuratively, but almost literally in this case. Yeah, well, listen, let's build on a few of those points, though, because uh, if you don't mind, uh, back in 2019, the, the space industry employed over 10,000 Canadians. It generated nearly uh, $5.5 billion in revenues. It was mostly in satellite and broadcasting services, though. Where else might the, the space industry go with this type of program now a part of its, of its history and future? Yeah, you, you're right. Billions of dollars per year that it contributes to Canada's economy, thousands of jobs that it produces. And, and what's really important to note is that it's poised to grow. The, there are reports that says it'll get to, to hundreds of billions of dollars in the next few decades, even some that will say that it will come to trillion dollars a year by 2040. So this is an immense sector with lots of growth opportunities. And, and there's lots of areas in which Canada can benefit from this earth, earth observation, remote sensing. Uh, and, and also people should all kind of try to wrap their heads around the idea that, that yeah, there's, there's the direct benefits of investing in space. But what space also helps us do is be all that much more competitive. If we want to have smart cities, autonomous cars, robotic manufacturing, AI, the metaverse, the, these things are going to be enabled by space infrastructure. And the competitiveness of many emerging and tradi traditional industries in Canada will in fact depend on space development and innovation. In fact, as you list all those things, obviously uh, the industries of the future, if Canada wants to remain competitive. So, so as you talk about all of that, Mr. Galant, where does government investment fit into this or are, are things shifting? Because we are certainly seeing more private players entering the space race. I'm thinking about Blue Origins and SpaceX. What's the picture like here in Canada? Government versus private investment. Yeah, it's it's the question, really. And why it's the question is, is decades ago, any country that was doing something into space, when it kind of first started, uh, it, it really was led by governments. It was government programming. And government plays an immense role for the space industry today. There's no question about that. But it has changed. And to your point, there's a commercialization of space now in the sense that space is more accessible. What we can harness in terms of the, the benefits of space for humanity and for Canadians for economic growth has changed and morphed over the years. So because of that, the dynamic has changed with it. So governments have a very important role and they should invest more into space given the economic opportunities that I listed off, but also because space can help us tackle climate change. The World Meteorological Organization says that the variables that we need to monitor, to fight and mitigate climate change, well, 50% of them are gonna be monitored through space. Uh, it can help with the digital divide, helping give economic opportunity to communities and families here in Canada and remote, rural, indigenous and northern communities. So th there's a lot of reasons why we should be investing uh, as, as a country. But then also government can play a role in helping industry, helping the ecosystem, be able to invest and create opportunities for Canadians while tackling these societal challenges. So it, it's a very interesting time. We hope today's mission will shed light on, on the interesting dynamics that have been created, but also, again, just be a celebration of this wonderful feat that these four individuals will do on behalf of humanity, and it's great to have a Canadian be a part of it. Well, Brian Gallant, uh, I wish I was at the reception this evening, but I'm here working. Still, thank you for the time. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being with us this evening.
Well, thank you. And it is going to be an out-of-this-world event, right? I just had to say it. Okay, okay. Send pictures. <laughs> Brian Galant, the CEO of Space Canada. And that is our program for this evening. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm Michael Serapio. And for everyone here at CPAC, we will see you again tomorrow. Uh, up next is L'Essentiel avec Esther Bejean. But as we go and end tonight's program, we do want to show you the scene from the House of Commons. As we said, the crew of Artemis II is in the nation's capital today. And here they are being greeted by members of Parliament a little earlier. This is Primetime Politics. We'll see you tomorrow. Mission Specialist, Christina Cook.